Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another installment of the Big Muse podcast. I will not talk about how I had to replace muddy bags that somebody, some neighbor of mine, in quotes, put into my trash bag, you know, my trash bins in the alley, like sabotage, called the city. They said, take them out. Then I took them out, 150 pounds a piece. And then the city called me back. Make sure you have them in the thing. I tried to put them back in. I'm not that strong. Um, So what I've done to relieve my mind, to relieve the pressures of this garbage bag sabotage incident, is I'm on the line with a dear friend, a brilliant, brilliant innovation leader named Michael Perman. And Michael's on the line now from where are you in near San Francisco at this point? I'm in Larkspur, California, about nine miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, that's that gives people a point of reference. And so you are an innovation leader. Is that fair to say that that's something that interests you and something that you help other people with? Uh, that's correct. And people have actually uh, given me that name in the past. I've got other names. Uh, the Zen Professor is a nickname that I got. When I was at Gap, right. A lot of what I practice is um, mindful innovation, which is a more contemporary twist on design thinking. Well, just you know, tell me if you could, what is innovation, and and specifically, how does it differ from creativity? I know they're somewhat interchangeable. That's true. Well, innovation is the ability to perceive alternative realities and the courage to move toward those visions. Creativity is a precursor to innovation. You need to be able to light up your minds, to be able to see the brilliance of what's to come, to expand your spectrum of thinking in order to get to a place where innovation will happen. So creativity is quite a bit like the mind. So in in a way, is creativity, to to, reduce it, sort of like a mood, a state of mind? Well, I think it's a a skill and ability as well as a state of mind. In other words, it takes sort of skills and some intent to reach a level of creativity. And then, yes, when you've gotten to that place, um, it is a a state of mind, not just for yourself, um, but there's a real importance to the collective consciousness the way that you connect with people who are around you, the way that you walk with their energy and add your own. And so it's not a soul process necessarily. You might get inspired as an individual, but the act of creativity is really co-creation. And so innovation then is, is one step further. You're actually envisioning and, and sort of delineating and articulating this alternative reality. That's exactly right. Now, innovation requires that you put yourself in the place where you can see alternative reality. So there's a creative aspect to that for sure. But innovation is more the act of developing the ideas in a way that we call from fuzzy to fruition. I like it. I like the alliteration there. Give give me an example of, of the times that that's sort of You've evinced that in, in your various roles. I know that you know most recently you were 
the head of the, what do they call the department at the Gap that you worked at? The name of the program was called MindSpark. Mm-hmm. So in the, MindSpark was about cultivating a culture of creativity. And our motto there was, in fact, moving ideas from fuzzy to fruition. And what we discovered was it's really easy on the front end to come up with a bunch of ideas. But people are afraid or they're hesitant or they're lazy or they don't know how to actually move those very vague notions into something that's a substantial product or a substantial service or even an organizational change. So it's obviously it's quite a bit, you know, it's a different story. One is articulating some ideas, which takes some skill and time and expertise, I suppose, to get the good ones. But then, you know, from the fuzzy idea to actually having it manifest itself is a whole other story. I think that's true. And the other important element of what you just said was you don't always know that the good ones are good right away. You know, people have used this expression in the past that there are no bad ideas. Well, in fact, there are a lot of bad ideas. There's a lot of stinkers. Don't they say there's no bad questions? No stupid questions, but there's definitely some bad ideas, right? There's a lot of bad ideas, but they're just kind of ill-formed at the moment. You know, they are a pupa or a larvae. They're not a caterpillar or a butterfly. They're in this place that's kind of nasty and ugly and undefined. But it requires some patience and some thought and the ability to imagine what something might be. That's how prototyping and experimenting and things like that come about. Um, But um, part of it is the intuition to know where you're going to follow and what's leading you to explore some ideas versus others. Well, can you give me an example, maybe two examples, one of an idea that maybe in your career that you chased or a team had chased that turned out to be not great? And at what point did you realize that? And and the other example, something that, you know, was an idea that once it was brought from fuzzy to fruition, you realize, wow, this is really quite amazing. Right. Well, I'll start with the latter because innovation is often serendipitous. And so... We were exploring at Levi's all sorts of fabric innovations, and they didn't necessarily have a role or purpose. For example, we had a fabric innovation that was water repellency, so jeans that would be water repellent. And we did a lot of research about this and had conversations with guys who might be interested, and they said things like, well, if I was at a bar, I could spill this on my pants and it would roll off and that would be cool. Uh, or, and if I lived in Minnesota and I had a tromp through the snow, it'd be kind of nice to have that. Um, but other than that, I don't really see a application for that. Now, at the same time, we were noticing through foresights, and that's an important element of, it, of innovation, um, that people were riding their bikes a lot more. We had bike, bike messengers moving things around. But in general, people, because of the traffic, were developing uh, bike skills and putting that into the routine, riding their bike more. Now, we ended up putting kind of two and two together, and we thought, well, that's very interesting. I bet a bike rider 
would probably like a little bit of this water repellency when they go to work, but they probably want something else. So we did some research with bike riders and find they want reflection, they want antimicrobial, they want stretch, stretch, they want certain kinds of pockets. And from all that, we created something called the commuter line for bicycle commuters. And it ended up being, I think, a $150 million business a year. Wow, that's interesting. It leads me to another question I had, too. Um, You talk a lot about craving, finding out what people crave, what they desire, um, as a means of discovery, really. It's a discovery about products. It could be about a direction of a relationship. But here you're saying that by researching these bike, I don't know if they're messengers or just general bike users, what do they need? Um, you found out what they needed or craved and, and then were able to kind of make manifest this new product. How long does it take to find out what somebody craves? How, how depthful is that research? You know, it doesn't really take very long. I think you just need to be a little bit broad and, and, and deep about it. So it requires some ethnography. So I'd say, you know, in a three-month period, I think you could collect a, a good number of stories that enables you to develop insights and process them in a more mindful way. Um, but it's about the depth. It's about being with them where they are. You know, not a phone call, not a survey. It's like being with them when they're on their bikes, where they go to really understand the nuances of their experience. I think that's true with anything. Um, The time, it's just about thinking time as well and connecting all the dots. You know, you have a lot of conversations with people. You get a lot of information. But you need to have a moment to be still and to process and connect all the dots to come up with your big ideas. Now, when you when you mention big ideas, what's your opinion? Are they mostly gotten sort of in a group setting? Like, you know, some people imagine a, a, an iteration session or a, you know, brain download session. We're all sitting around a conference table. Or are they inspired collectively and sort of these grand ideas, these light bulb ideas kind of go off with people in in isolation from one another? I believe in a group concept. I believe in accessing both our individual subconscious thinking, which is some things, ideas that you have in your head that you don't normally let loose because you're afraid or you're intimidated. Um, And so I also believe in the collective consciousness. Now, the collective consciousness is you and other people working together in a group for a common cause, but nothing really happens until you develop a sense of empathy and trust and comfort with each other, and you start to act as one brain. Once you get to the place where you're one brain, and it takes a little time, it might take a week, two weeks, three weeks, depends how well you can get to know each other, Um, but it enables you to essentially share your brain and co-create with each other. Well, that's a high level. When I think of that, you know, idea of being thrown into a room with people around a table, that's what happens in my imagination. And you're starting to spit out ideas. For me, it's a really daunting scenario. 
I, I think that my, my IQ level drops by 25% in that environment. And then I think back to other times, you know, I, I used to be in a band with some of my best friends for several years. And I think we did have one brain. And, and, and there was a lot of power in that. There was a lot of arguing and so forth, but there's a lot of freedom to express oneself. It wasn't, there was not a lot of intimidation. And I think that that spoke a lot about the, the greater power of the collective mind. Um, and, you know, people that have that are very fortunate. People have that in a marriage sometimes, optimally. And they become smarter together than either of the individuals might. Yeah, well, that sensation you had wasn't about your IQ dropping. It was probably about your oxytocin or your dopamine dropping and your cortisol going up. In other words, you may have been in a situation where you have you lost some excitement, you lost some interest, you were afraid, you were uncomfortable. And so there's a lot of neuroscience required to understand how innovation works, especially mindful innovation. You have to have your mind at a peaceful, comfortable, empathetic place that you're willing to share in a non-judgmental way with each other. And therefore, the ideas will start to flourish. And all of a sudden, you maybe your IQ, you'll feel that going up because you'll feel smarter, you'll feel more confident, and you'll feel, feel more uh, of an alive contributor. What was it that they called you? What was your other name at the Gap? The, the guru something? The Zen professor. The Zen professor. So uh, when I'm thinking about it, I mean, is it a misconception to say that your role oftentimes has been one of uh, sort of setting or helping to curate a particular mood among people to get those dopamine levels uh, up and the cortisol down? I think that's true. And that's all part of building a culture of creativity. You know, there's a lot of highs and lows, and there's an arc to having creativity happen. And so understanding how that arc work is important. I think they also called me the Zen professor because, number one, I was teaching in there. That was a lot of my roles to build that culture. But also, I think people would come to me when things were really tough and chaotic, and they needed somebody to make some peace and solve some problems and have teams work together again. And so I have a lot of patience and resilience in that regard and was able to help. What, what do you think uh, some of the biggest challenges are in organizations and, it's, and specifically in getting this kind of collective mindset together? I, I could imagine most companies aren't as, as good at this as, you know, maybe the ones that you've worked at. Well, I think getting back to one of your other questions, Companies don't take the time to understand what people crave. That's true with the consumers or the end, up, end customer that you're trying to serve, but it's also true within an organization. I think often in a creative group setting, people look at each other based on their resume or their current role, but they don't look at each other as what that person could be, their ultimate potential. And so they're only looking at the tip of the iceberg. And I think that's very damaging in organizations as a result, is that people's true abilities uh, are hidden, and they never have a chance to become who they're meant to be. 
So organizations often obfuscate that. Um, I think often organizations are also playing not to lose rather than playing to win and not really allowing the room to think. They're often very fast uh, and want decisions quickly. Um, and dealing with ambiguity because innovation, and especially in the early fuzzy stages, is about ambiguity. That's a leadership skill that not everyone has. You throw all those th three things together, and that can cause a lot of dysfunction. Excuse me, a lot of dysfunctionality in organizations. You know, I've spent some time in, and I think we would discuss this off mic, but in a, in a couple organizations that you know want more creativity, they want you know this becomes a buzzword and want you know deeper innovation. But once you sort of examine what's happening in the organization, you see there's not a lot of room for, quote, creativity. There's, it, it, as you said, things are moving too fast. The processes are set up in such a way that a, a radical idea, even if it's a great one, it can't really be uh, put into effect because it's not cost effective at the moment. You'd have to dissemble this giant structure to incorporate what could be truly creative ideas what's i don't know what's your feeling about in the air about people's sort of taste for for real innovation or real creativity yeah that's a great question i think sometimes faced with real creativity people get really afraid every organization has a different metric for how creative something is uh, and sometimes the really creative ideas are, are a bit scary. That's number one. Number two, um, creativity is a skill. I mean, it's a sensation, it's a feeling, but there's definitely some specific skills that you can implement that enable you to be creative on a more regular basis. Um, not every company is willing to take the time to actually build those skills, but the ones that do are very prosperous. Uh, number three, there is some um, room for having strategy around creativity. In other words, taking the time to really understand what's happening in the future, the foresights that might guide your business that lead to mm. strategies and platforms. If you apply creativity to the strategies and platforms that make sense for your particular business, they're going to have a lot softer landing, even if they're a little bit vague because they're meaningful and they're on track with something. So I think that's another really helpful way to ensure that an idea gets some traction and keeps on with its momentum. Now, are these ideas sort of modern or did, say, General Motors at its inception have some of these ideas going on? I mean, uh, is it something that now we uh, equate only with, say, Google or, you know, super progressive companies. Is it an old model that's being restored or is it something entirely new in terms of the whole ethos and the ideology of it? Well, I think it's cyclical uh, because there's new leaders that come about all the time. Um, but I also think that there's been a revolution in the last few years related to purpose, to values, and even mindfulness in the workplace. So the kind of work that I do in particular around mindful innovation, I think it's in vogue now at the, at the very moment. 
And then, you know, sometimes companies are flourishing and they feel like they don't need to pay attention to it. Sometimes they're in trouble and they feel like they only need to focus on their operations. And others are, are saying they look around their environment and they look at their competitors and they say, why didn't we come up with that? Mm-hmm. It really is um, a leadership value and a leadership inspiration for somebody to say, this is important to our growth. And then people like me step in and help guide the way. Now, who's a leader that you have either been inspired from or learned directly from? It could be past or present. Well, during my gap years, Glenn Murphy was the CEO, and I really admired him. Um, you know, he was a, a strong CEO in terms of his ability to point in the right direction. He was a tough guy in terms of um, making sure that we you know, delivered results when we wanted to. But what I liked about him most is that he lived vicariously through creativity and innovation. He may not have had that as a personal skill, but he valued it and was willing to live with the weird idiosyncrasies that I would bring to the party. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, even though I didn't think of him as a creative leader, I thought him as a really great leader, and I, it was one of my most enjoyable working experiences. So, I mean, did you feel in some way that, you know, obviously must have felt acknowledged or honored, as you say, he didn't think your ideas, which were on the surface probably weird, some of the best of them, he welcomed them? He welcomed them because he knew the organization needed the infusion. He need, the organization needed to break some rules every once in a while and step off of the main highway and go into the back roads and explore. Um, so that was really great. I've worked with Adidas as well, and what I love about Adidas is they're, they're amazing future thinkers. They're very comfortable thinking three, five, ten years out and imagining what could be and how to lead, not follow. And so my work with them has been a, a pleasure as well. So, I mean, I, I imagine there's some companies that get to a, a place where, you know, things are going really well. Profits are high, the stock shares are high, and, you know, maybe it's just, let's not mess with the formula, they might think. Um, you know, what what has been your experience with those kind of companies, and, you know, what's the sort of historical precedent? What's the arc? Well, I think the the arc is that they get complacent. And um, innovation is something that you need in your bank account. You need a portfolio. And you never know when something's going to hit. Some innovation work might pop in three months, six months. Could be two years, could be five years or nine years. So you always want to have that portfolio. And my experience is, and I think the evidence would indicate this, the companies that take their, their foot off the gas pedal in the innovation world find themselves in trouble and in catch-up mode one day and they realize holy shit what did we miss yeah i wonder i mean it's a friend of mine who's uh you know traveling salesman he's just one guy and you know the brick and mortar stores that he sells to are just they're just disappearing you know every week and then you have companies you know i guess sears stalwart you know companies and and uh 
Radio Shack, for example, you know, that's kind of, I don't know where that's going. I, I wonder where they were at in terms of having that innovation in their portfolios. Oh, I mean, I think the classic examples are Blockbuster and Tower Records. You know, those are two companies that were high flying and just didn't see it coming. They just did not see the alternative coming because they want to protect what they have. And that happens time and time again. I think well, to some degree that's happening with retail stores. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, humans still want to go to places. They just want to go to different places than they've gone to in the past. Yeah, I mean, that's a, the classic example there, I suppose, of the, you know, the disrupted <clears throat> industry with that had a little hubris, thought they would never leave the record business. Right. And, and a lot of people think that, uh, and this is me kind of sl- slightly defending what they d- did, which is a rare thing for me to do. But, you know, it happened so quickly and so unexpectedly, the development of this thing called the MP3, the compressed file that could be moved over the Internet, even at the speeds that were available in the mid-90s. It just came upon so fast, and, and they had invested so much in infrastructure, pressing plants and so on, trucks that would move the, 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 the material, the records. I mean, it, it was almost as though the chess game had turned so quickly that there was no innovation that could have saved them. And Well, and, I think that's true. Um, however, it... Um, it happened more quickly than unexpectedly. I think if you've got your eyes open all the time and not be myopic about uh, the business that you're in, you'll see these things coming. They, yeah, they might come quick, quicker than you, than you imagine. However, if you see them coming and you're in that game, um, then you're going to do fine. And there's no reason why Blockbuster couldn't have been in the Netflix business. They just got as you indicated, kind of stuck in their own model and didn't want to see that. It's almost like they shield themselves from the noise. Well, I mean, their portfolio of innovation, I don't know if it was existent at all. It seems like it was totally non-existent. And, you know, I know for a fact that the record companies didn't have this ideological portfolio of innovation. I like the way that you put that, that there is a a division or certain amount of resources that's dedicated to creating something that doesn't yet exist. I mean, and that that could, upon its existence, even disrupt what they've built thus far. I mean, that's the sort of the inherent danger, if you will, of having that. Look, we've come up with this thing. It's going to mean taking away all these pressing plants. It's kind of like I can understand people's native reluctance to do that it takes uh an incredible amount of imagination and seems like fortitude and bravado to to do that and some industries just you know they just didn't do it well i think you hit it on the head and that's what innovation requires imagination fortitude and bravado and um if you don't have that you're at risk of losing out um, and, and maybe the, the sale, if you will, 
you know, the marketing of things that you and I both do. It's, it's, it's an auspicious time. Not only have we seen so many innovative companies come up with things that were unimaginable even 10 years ago, I don't have to list them, they're well known. We've also seen the disruption of so many companies. So it's, and we've seen the speed at which a blockbuster dissolves away. Netflix, by the way, was saved by the bell. We forget how close to being completely gone they were, too. And, of um, course, that's true with Apple. Right. Back in the right. day. Yeah, so I think we'll continue to see that when there will be cycles. Uh, and you, who knows who's going to get disrupted next in that regard. So, Michael, I have to say this is, you know, We've been friends now for quite a few years. I haven't, I haven't known this side of you. You're, you're super knowledgeable about this, and you've given me a little education. No wonder why they call you the Zen Master. I've just been tasting some of it, and it's it's interesting that it's whenever you hear something that's true, which I I do believe I've heard from you just now. It's not only true in a business sense, but there's it's true in a universal sense. It's true in a human relationship sense and a marriage and parenting children. Um, this idea of having in one's portfolio something for the future, something to grow from where you are now. Um, and I think that's uh, a guiding principle for anybody that wants to sustain and grow anything they're doing. So much luck to you and much luck to the both of us. Um, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate the wrap-up. Um, I enjoyed speaking with you. I always learn something from you as well. Well, have a wonderful day, and I'm going to put this up online, and we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. I think we've got some power going on. Talk to you soon. All right, brother. All right. Be well, Michael. That was Michael Perman, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll have some information how you can get in touch with him. And uh, join us next time for the Big Muse podcast. Mm-hmm.